Which means for intro music to this, we could use the Vampire Weekend song, Oxford Comma, which is a great song. I hope we do. Brilliant. (laughs) Brilliant. Welcome to episode four of Major Revisions. Today we will be talking about part two of two of our section on the perils of peer review. Here, as always, is Grace Wilkinson, professor-elect at Iowa State University. How are you, Grace? I'm doing well. Thanks, John. And also Jeff Atkins from Virginia Commonwealth University. How you doing, Jeff? Uh, I'm here, so that counts for something. Counts for a lot. All right, and I am John Walter. And one topic that's, that's come up on another forum is the idea, the question, rather, do biologists and ecologists need to take calculus? What do you guys think? Grace, I'm going to let you step on that one first. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's interesting. Um, I think regardless of whether or not you actually use calculus in your research in, your, in the future, or if you're a biologist or ecologist going on to another field besides just hard research, I think it's pretty important to learn that kind of logical reasoning that mathematics give you, as well it's um, important to have that basis and that foundation. So I would say it's pretty important for biologists and ecologists and environmental scientists to take mathematics courses. What do you think, Jeff? So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna support you on the take mathematics courses line here, but maybe not necessarily calculus. And I think the reason being is you know some of the the impetus for this was I think it's Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina is looking at restructuring kind of their quantitative competency requirements for their ecology and biology majors. And and the reason being is that calculus and organic chemistry is one of the big, or, you know, those are the two courses where you have the highest failure rates. So in a lot of ways, they end up being these kind of uh, like weed out courses, right? Particularly organic chemistry, but also calculus as well. And, you know, truthfully, you know, like I don't really use a lot of calculus in my everyday life i do use a lot of statistics and that's you know something i think that a lot of class you know a lot of undergrad majors don't necessarily have as or is not as widespread as it should be so i don't i don't know if they should be required to take calculus or not like i think i don't know like i think this is actually a pretty good open question yeah i do strongly agree with that you know you need that quantitative mathematical thinking but i'm not sure if calculus is the answer John? Yeah, I think we're kind of all in agreement that this quantitative foundation, you know, being comfortable with statistics, with numbers, with using math is really critical in, you know, research, biology, and ecology. But I, I tend to agree with you, Jeff, that it doesn't necessarily need to take the form of calculus. You know, I, I think that the important thing is getting people comfortable with quantitative reasoning and logical reasoning and calculus can be one day one way of doing that but it's not necessarily the only way steven storgatz who's a mathematician and writer at cornell i believe you know wrote a book called the the joy of x which is a great pun but also it's basically about just kind of math and science communication and he kind of goes through and explains a lot of very complicated mathematical principles and very kind of short stories based on you know these um, articles that he wrote in the New York Times. And one of the points that he kind of makes in that and also in, in speeches that he talks about is that the way we teach mathematics 
particularly in high schools, but also in, um, to a certain degree in undergraduate institutions, is we're still stuck in the space age, that we're teaching people the mathematics that are required to get people into space and to launch rockets, right? I mean, that's why we teach trigonometry, and that's why we teach calculus. Like, these are the, that's what you need to put a man or person or human, monkey, dog, whatever you want to put woman into space. That's what you got to know, right? You know, he makes the points that we really should be teaching more about number sense, or, you know, graph theory, or, you know, something like that. Stuff that's not, or your probability, statistics, these other things that are lacking. And so I think, in a way, you know, I, I don't know. But also, that said, there are facets of ecology that really depend on calculus, right? Yeah, I, I agree with you, Jeff. I think that there's a, kind of what you were getting at there, Jeff, to some degree, um, was that the you know, if we're teaching mathematics for getting into space or things like that, perhaps part of it is the way that the mathematics curriculums at universities are set up and the basis of the foundation is starting with calculus and then moving on from there, just like in biology, how we start with kind of a bio 101. And so maybe that's why it, calculus is the prereq or the, you know, what is required to be taken. So Grace, what's the highest mathematic or mathematics class you've ever taken, just out of curiosity? Uh, Calc 2, I guess. John, what about you? Uh, I took Calc 1, and I'm sort of a pseudo-theoretical ecologist, so I've actually taught <laughs> myself a lot, of, a lot of things that I you know, didn't learn in the classroom, but as far as you know, formal calculus, yeah, that's the highest that I took. Yeah, same here. I actually took it twice because I took it in high school in like 11th grade or something, and then my undergrad's in literature, and so I never took it you know, like during undergrad, like I test, you know, I had that, um, what do you call it? The credit from high school. And so then when I went to apply for grad school, because I had taken it like more than 10 years ago, it was right at that 10 year mark. I actually had to retake it again when I was at the university of North Carolina at Asheville so that I could get into grad school. <laughs> so I did better the second time, but not, you know, markedly better. I think I went from like a C minus to a B plus. But, uh, yeah, so I failed calculus the first time I took it. I just want to, you know, own that fact. Um, I got a D minus an intro to calc, the basically calc one and or calc A and then calc B. I did the C or whatever, and so I'm with you. <laughs> it was mine was rounded up. Heavily. And you are both successful PhD holding environmental scientists. <laughs> That's the lesson. That is the lesson. Actually. Ironically, from a fairly math-heavy department, too. <laughs> so. I I would also say that we should be teaching more computer science stuff in undergrad that we're not. Yeah. I think is a much bigger issue. I'd really like to see it integrated into the curriculum, in fact. And, and that, you know, there's, of course, some formal training in computer science, but then just integrated more into our science curriculum. And it's something that, you know, in my infinite amount of free time, I hope to be able to do with my own curriculum and in my own classroom. So that's something that this got me thinking. And I started looking at different curriculums, basically like ecology majors at different institutions to try it. Because I was going to write something about, you know, how those undergraduate majors are different at different institutions. But I found that they're really difficult and not very clear to read from websites. So that may take a lot longer than I anticipated <laughs> to try to figure out. Like even you know our own institutions, they're not really well worded on the websites. But um, 
I think it also depends on if your ecology degree comes from a biology department or an ecology department or an eco-evolutionary biology department. So anyway, it's, it's a big tent. But with that, so we want to revisit and finish up our discussion on peer review. And we're going to pick it up where we left off and start talking about the role of the reviewer and kind of how we view that. And, you know, we've all done reviews for, you know, multiple journals here for a while now and been on, you know, so we've been on both ends of that, receiving the reviews and giving them. So I guess we'll start with you, John. How do you view your role as a reviewer? Yeah, so that's a good question. And and I don't expect that everybody who reviews papers agrees with me about this. Um, I certainly don't think that they act like they all agree with me on this in the way that people write their reviews. Um, but so I see my my responsibility as having two two main uh, main aspects. The first is to the authors of the paper that I'm reviewing, and that's just to try and make it better. Um, to try and point out things that might be shortcomings, whether they're in presentation or in the actual conduct, conduct, can the way the science is done. Um, <laughs> yeah, excuse, excuse me there. Um, and yeah, just just to help, um, and because it you know aligns with my you know relative expertise in ecology. Um, I usually spend a lot of time uh, thinking about the statistics or the models that. Um, go into um, a, a paper and how to improve those um, and how to present them effectively uh, in ways that a reader is going to understand. Um, but I also think that I have a role to the handling editor um, to help them try and make a decision about the paper. And so, you know, that's where I need to be um you know, willing to give them uh, an honest uh, opinion, uh, even if it is somewhat different than I might, you know, present it to um, to the authors, right? Because I don't want to be mean unnecessarily. Um, I want to be rigorous uh, in my reviews to the authors. Um, and I don't want to be mean in the way that I, um, you know, give confidential comments to um, to the editor, but I do think that I have a little bit more leeway to kind of speak freely of what I think of um, the paper um, in terms of its novelty and um, fit for the aims and scope of the journal and its scientific quality. Yeah, you definitely want to be rigorous, but you also want to be fair. I think that's important. But... Grace, what about you? How do you view the role of the reviewer and how you, do you approach that? Yeah, paper? so I agree with a lot of the things that John was saying. And when I approach doing a review, I'd say I, I really ask myself fundamentally two questions about the paper that I'm reviewing. And the first is, are the methods sound? So, you know, and that includes the field collection methods, the sample analysis methods, the statistical methods, maybe modeling. Has there been enough sensitivity analyses done? Things like that. So it encompasses a lot of things. But first and foremost, are the methods sound? And then secondly, do the conclusions follow from the results? And so are the conclusions based and um, founded in those results? And do they align with what the data actually show? And 
these are if sort of these two big requirements are met in my mind there might be a lot of ways to improve the paper and I want to make those suggestions in my role as the reviewer but those are the two things that need to be there um, with no fatal flaws for me to say yep I think this is a paper that probably should be considered and needs to be published here's some things that need to be worked on if you've never given or received a review typically the general structure that you get back from a reviewer or that you would write is that you're going to you know it starts with a, basically a one paragraph kind of summary of what the manuscript was about and then the main results like it's 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 basically the reviewer is writing a very short condensed book report based on your manuscript right to get this kind of general idea and then from that you usually get a paragraph where there's a summarization of like the biggest strengths of the manuscript um, Typically, they'll try to even find something really good to say about it. Uh, if it's, if it's, you know, and then like usually lead with the good and then follow up with the bad, and then from that you get down to basically more finer details, uh, depending on the review. Some reviewers will just get some specific points. I like to go through and give line by, you know, line number, kind of just chronologically through the manuscript all the way down to the plots, and then if the paper's a really good paper and I really like it. You know, a lot of those comments, I'll even focus more on grammatical issues, but if there's, you know, kind of big procedural methodological issues, I'll go through and focus more on that. But if you can get past that stage and then you can just get to the point where you're helping them clarify their writing, then and that's good, right? But if there's a lot of methodological issues, I'm not necessarily going to spend a lot of the time, you know, doing grammatical editing when there are other bigger issues in the paper. You know, I've already already spent a large portion of my life doing grammatical editing, and that's only, you know, it's a lot of work. Right, and we only have finite time to uh, to do this. How long do you guys usually spend on your reviews? Um, I usually, two to eight hours, but typically two, two to three. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's pretty similar. Uh, I'm getting faster at them because I think I feel more confident in my responses but or my evaluations. But yeah, I'd say probably a typical paper, two to three hours. Yeah, that's that's a good point. It's, you know, the more that I do it, I kinda, kind of the shorter it is. Because, you know, I want to read through the paper first without doing anything. Just kind of read it. And then I try to reread it again while taking notes on it. You know, if I don't, if I don't have a printout of it, like I'll try to read it like on a tablet where you can go through and just kind of mark things. Um, you know, with the edit and the highlight features. And then that point, then I'll kind of go through my process will be to then kind of write out based on my comments. John, how do you kind of do that nuts and bolts kind of work? Yeah, so pretty similar. Um, I usually spend anywhere between two and three hours, um, although sometimes more. Um, there are a couple papers that, you know, I thought were um, were promising, but uh, had some bigger issues of presentation uh, in them that I've spent a little bit more time on um, to try and you know to try and clean those help the authors clean those up. But yeah, I usually try and you know basically do the whole thing in one sitting and um, you know then kind of let it sit for a day or two um, and then come back to it and reread it. Um, read my review, do a quick reading of the paper again, and, and make sure that I agree with the things that I thought the first time around. Uh, and yeah, then uh, then press submit. 
So what do you guys find as far as the com most common problems that you see with papers that you're that you have to review? Grace, what do you what do you find? Well, unfortunately, I'd say about half the papers that I'm assigned for review and accept um, there are uh, the grammar is either so bad or the use of the English language is so bad that it's unintelligible. And so with that, I usually just respond to the associate editor that I didn't feel that the paper was of the proper quality for evaluation um, and just respond at that time. That's probably the number one biggest thing I get. Is it a lot of English as a second language kind of issues? Yeah, and you know, there I, I try to give a lot of leeway. There's um, instances where perhaps there's just some consistent grammatical issues, um, but the paper is still very readable, um, and there are just these small things that need to be changed, and I'll point those out. But I have gotten a fair number of papers where it's just completely, I have no idea what the author's trying to say, and it might be an English as a second language issue, but I, you know, I just, I can't understand the science, and so I'm not going to take the time to try to do that if I can't understand the science by just reading the paper. I shouldn't have to decode it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's 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 a time commitment to review a paper, you know, kind of as we as we mentioned. I mean, there's, you know, there's the strong urge to participate in the community. I mean, not only do you get to, I mean, a benefit to you as a reviewer, you get to read kind of this, you know, very cutting edge, right, unpublished stuff. But it is a huge time commitment. And despite beyond the service component of it, I mean, you want to make that a strong time investment. So you don't want to kind of sink into this thing where it's clear that the preparation hasn't been done. John, what do you see most commonly? Yeah, I mean, I see a lot of that too. Um, and that's that's frustrating because it makes it really difficult to do your job um, as a reviewer if you just can't understand what, what the paper is really saying. Um, but yeah, I do try and give a lot of leeway with that especially if the authors are foreign um and i've actually spent a lot of time uh with some of those uh papers um to you know to try and help it along um but i so beyond beyond that one thing that i find myself harping on over and over is on on methods and this this may be just partly a, a personal preference thing, but I read a lot of papers where at least on the first draft, there the the methods are explained, but they're explained in a very superficial way. So you know what they did, but you don't know why. As a as a reviewer and as a scientist, you, you know you want to understand um, some of the motivations behind. Uh, the choices that um, that a group made, especially if there if there are subjective choices involved, um, and and the other thing is that I I see methods sections that are written a lot of times like basically just a string of descriptions, but there's not there's not an overall roadmap to um, seeing how the different pieces fit together. Um, and how, you know, one analysis or experiment um, leads to the other. And so th those are things that I um, find myself asking for over and over and over again. Hey, so can I ask another question to you guys? So this, um, somebody posted this on Twitter today. It was actually Terry McGlynn. What tense 
should your methods be written in? Present or past? Past, you did them. John, what do you think? Yeah, I would say that I almost exclusively write in past tense. Um, although, my, you know, I'd be inclined to kind of give a pass on this as long as um, the the authors are consistent throughout the paper. Okay, so the follow-up. Your results, what tense should they be in? I'm really bad at this, but past. Past tense. You think past. John, do you disagree? I don't disagree. Um, I think I, I default to past. Um, when I asked because someone posted a pro, a pro writing tip for scientific papers that says, put the methods in the past tense because that's the stuff that you did, and your results in present tense because they are, quote, established truth. And so there's oh. been a little bit of Ooh, I feedback. Dis- I disagree that. with that established truth <laughs> phrasing. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. That's that's a little, a little too much for me. So so the, that does relate to a caveat that I was was thinking of adding was, was that you know you you have you have a set of methods you have a set of results and. On one hand, your results are describing the outcome of something you did, but almost certainly your um, your method or your results are pointing toward some kind of bigger picture question. And I think that those, you know, those kind of bigger picture implications aren't restricted to uh, to the past tense. Yeah, I agree with that. Although, would you really be presenting those? in your results section, or would that be a part of your discussion? Primarily, that'd be a part of the discussion, but I think that, you know, I often have sentences that are... No, come to think of it, those are those are almost always in the discussion. So I think that that's more of a discussion thing, and the results are going to mainly be in past tense. I, I, I would generally avoid present tense almost always, but I don't know. The discussion definitely is kind of a different type of animal. You get into that. Now I'm curious what I've done. <laughs> I can see what have I actually written before I go on the record and say one thing, and then I'm like, oh, let's see, what did I do? You guys, you guys just talk amongst yourself. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what did I? What have I done? Just grab the first paper that comes up. Uh, Oh, it looks past. It looks pretty past. Yeah, I think it's usually past. And some journals actually explicitly ask for past. I don't know if you've uh, if you've run across that, but I think some of the um, British Ecological Society journals do explicitly ask for things to be in past tense. Um, actually, I got a little bit of a mix of present and past. Not in like a bad grammatical mix, but like I mean, it, it flows logically. So I'm gonna go with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, just mix that up. Oh man, the worst are when they just ask for passive voice. Ugh. That's what kills me. It's just so wordy and verbose and silly sounding. And it's even worse when you send it to a co-author and they will suggest that. I've not necessarily had that experience, but. We we mostly disagree about Oxford commas. Uh, and by that mean, you mean you're not going to name names, but you have disagreed several times with a particular co-author. 
No, I, no, Howie and I know this. Howie and I, I Howie was my PhD advisor, but he, uh, we've disagreed much about Oxford commas, and I eventually just kind of kowtowed to it and have accepted the world of Oxford comma. Uh. <laughs> so, so it's, Howie's it's not, pro Oxford comma. Like ultimately, who cares? He is very pro Oxford comma, but I think part of it was that I, you know, like my undergrads in literature, which we've very much eschewed the Oxford comma. It's kind of the, you know, yeah. Cutting edge. I didn't know it was in, like, out I'm of not, vote. I don't really care. I, so my problem is that you see those stupid grammatical things online about examples where the Oxford comma can be used. I should look one of these up. But most of those times where it just doesn't make any sense, the sentences they've structured, you could just reword the sentence and it would totally make sense without an Oxford comma. So that's just my ridiculous aside for today. Which means for intro music to this, we could use the Vampire Weekend song, Oxford comma, that. which is a great song. I hope we do. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> We should actually, if you guys ever want to get intro music into the, or any type of music specifically in the podcast, just work that in as a side reference. <laughs> and then that's how you do it. So when you guys are writing peer reviews, sorry to bring us back to the topic. Um, oh, when you guys are Jeez. writing peer okay, reviews, uh, and if you haven't done this before, usually there is a um, box for blind comments to the authors. And that's where you put your comments that... Jeff was talking about before the major and the minor revisions and such. But then there's usually a box where you can make private comments to the editor. And I was wondering, what do you guys usually put in that box? So I usually write probably, well, I try to write very, the comments that I would write to the author is something that if I were identified as the person reviewing that paper, I would be totally fine with being recognized, right? Um, I would be slightly a little bit more candid, I think, to the editor, or I have been in the past. You know, not to say like I'm, I would never say anything like, oh, this paper's totally stupid trash, you know, not like that. But I would be just a little bit more candid, I think, or I have been. Um, but I'm failing on an example of that. John, how do you approach that situation? No, I, I agree with you. Um, I'm typically more candid in those than I am. Um, and, you know, in, Typically, in your comments to the authors, you are not supposed to reveal whether, you know, what you think the decision on the manuscript should be. When I make my confidential comments to the editor, I'm typically you know, kind of justifying what I think the, um, the editor's decision should be, or, you know, what, <laughs> put a little bit differently, if I were handling that paper, what I would do with it. Oh, so you're kind of, in a way, editorializing? Or making it, like, I guess not maybe not editorializing necessarily, but maybe making a case for, to back up what you've written? Yeah. Well, and, and not all journals do this, but some explicitly ask you, what do you, you know, should the, the decision be accept minor revisions, major revisions reject or reject with possibility of resubmission um and so yeah I, you know i want to try and use that space to um explain my thinking yeah i i have actually made a, a case for i mean there was one paper that had that i reviewed that had some serious language issues that definitely needed some work but it was a very novel data set and hugely important i think and i did use that as a case like hey you know we need to address this clearly but you know, we need this out there. This is a clearly underrepresented ecosystem and that really needs to be in the literature and is hugely important. So 
Uh, Grace, what do you do? What do you do? So I think usually in those boxes, kind of similar to what John was saying, giving a little bit of feedback on why I gave um, my recommendation for reject or minor revisions or whatnot. And especially if it's um, major revision versus reject, if I've made um, some very comments to the authors that are major issues that I think they need to address, I like to give the editor an idea of whether or not I think the authors are going to be able, based on the data that they've presented, um, or what I might know about the system, if they're going to be able to answer those comments or criticisms, or if it's unlikely that they'll be able to. And usually I, I hope that they can answer those and try to give the reason of why I think they'll be able to do that, and so why I say something like major revision, even if it seems like a pretty big flaw. This, in a way, the summation question to you guys. Does peer review work? What do you think? Well, you start with that one, John. Yeah, I mean that's a broad question, right? Um, so there, there are two, there are kind of two things that I see in this. One is you know, sort of what are, what do we mean by work? You know, what are the, what is peer review <laughs> supposed to accomplish? Um, it is, in fact, a lot of work. That is true. You know, does does it does it accomplish those things and? Um, if so, or if not, you know, what are, what are some reasons that we should be skeptical um, or cautious about, um, about peer review? Um, but I think, for, you know, first of all, you know, peer review is, is here to stay. You know, it might get some tweaks around the edges, but this is essentially how, our, how science operates in the academic sphere and it's not going to go away anytime soon. And I think that more often than not, it is, it is effective, although an imperfect form of effectiveness, um, at helping to ensure that good science gets out there. But there's also, or I should say, the science that does get published in, paper, in journals is good for the most part. But it's not perfect at doing that. And it does sometimes let papers through the cracks that are not very high quality um, or have some, some unforeseen flaws. Um, and those get published, and maybe they, they shouldn't because of those flaws. Um, but it's, it's a way that our community works, and it's a way that our community moves forward um, and helps to establish um, consensus about what's good and um, where our field is going. So so the aims of peer review, right, you guys correct me if I'm wrong on this, is to basically keep the integrity of the science, right? It's just to hold each other accountable and to do the best work that we can, right? Or how would you, how would you say that more succinctly? Grace, you're a professor elect, so... Yeah, I, I'm going to defer to you. I, well, I, I don't know about deference, but I think it, it uh, definitely is a goal of peer review. And I think that one of the things that we do gain by having a peer review system and having a um, group of your peers evaluate your work for its scientific soundness and um, to some degree what it's adding to the body of knowledge that we have. Um, so maybe some question of novelty at some journals and in peer review, but scientific soundness allows us as a community to move on and discuss the ideas and debate the ideas, which is a really big part of the scientific community and process as well, right, is the debate of those ideas. 
Um, and so we, we don't have to be caught up in the details of methods and things like that and soundness if we can just debate ideas. And so that's what one of the purposes is to serve, would be my thought. What do you think, John? I think you summed it up quite well. Um, you did you did do a good well, thank job. You. Yeah, I don't think I'd add add to that, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a there's a piece by Bethany Brookshire, who's a science writer for the Science News that actually came out this morning entitled Blame Bad Incentives for Bad Science. And it's basically talking about the publisher parish attitude. One of the things she raises as a problem and how bad science gets into journals is where's the section the most of cutting down kind of your research right to like the smallest publishable units and then trying to spread those out a lot and she identifies that as a problem uh, to scientific quality uh, what were some of the other ones there's some interesting things in here that were kind of corollaries to what we were talking about but um well, that's interesting, though, just sort of the point you just brought up about whether or not the minimum publishable unit, which is a phrase that we use on our our project a lot, like a collaborative project I work on, is, um, you know, it's the minimum publishable unit. Does that actually have to do with the quality of work or does that just up our quantity of science that's out there? And so it definitely ups the quantity. But how does that is that good? Well, it makes it a lot more work for everyone else, and it means we're doing less time sitting and synthesizing and thinking about what the truly important points are. But I'm I'm not convinced it's necessarily the reason for poor quality. Yeah, I'm not convinced either. I, I'm not convinced either. I think that you know probably you know something that has more to do with it um, is you know the race to be first to publish on an idea uh, or on, on a new discovery. Um, I think that demonstrably there are, are cases where um, people who have done that have, uh, have made mistakes that probably wouldn't have been made had they been more careful. But I also don't think, and this is just my perception, but I don't think that that's necessarily as big a problem in ecology as in some other fields. I think that you know, ecology is just, it's its more diffuse. There's so much more importance of um, place and environmental context that, um, you know, compared to, and, and I know that a, you know, medical biologist would tell me that this is an oversimplification of, the, of their field. But, you know, to me, it feels like you know, in, in medicine, there are, you know, some holy grails like, you know, cancer and, um, you know, some famous diseases that a lot of people are really trying hard to solve and they're trying very hard to solve those problems in similar ways. And so that creates a kind of competitive environment um, for speed and novelty that, I think, um, you know, could lead to some hasty science being done. So, I don't know, maybe this is a topic for later to follow up, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's, in a way, it's talking about kind of trying to game the system, right? I mean, if you go up, this is not something I have to worry about right now, but when you go up for tenure, you're 
when you're being evaluated or even a tenure, even being hired, right? You, you're going to be looking at the people hiring you may not necessarily be within your subdiscipline. And so one of the things they could default to is just simply like number of publications, right? And so in a way you could be gaming the system, dividing those up into like the smallest minimum publishable units to get those numbers up really high if you can, instead of, you know, synthesizing and get to the better, bigger impact. Well, I guess that kind of gets to, you know, another aspect of this is that, you know, quality and not just quantity are important in, you know, hiring and tenure and promotion decisions. And, you know, I know people who have more than twice the number of papers that I do, but they're all published in pretty small journals. And, you know, they've been on the market for longer than I have and, and don't have jobs. And so just, you know, anecdotally, it seems like that, like that matters. Um, so, it, but if you, you know, do take the time to do um, a more synthetic and authoritative study, that's going to end up in a better quality journal um, that, you know, has a, a broader readership and a stronger reputation. And um, I mean, you know, full disclosure, I don't have a job <laughs> or a, a tenure track faculty job, <laughs> rather. Um, so, so I, you know, and even if I did, I'd be an N of one. But I, th you know, I think quality matters. And, you know, it's tough to publish in very good journals if you are taking that least publishable unit mentality on all of your work. Exactly. And I think um, getting back to a bit of what Jeff said as well, in um, people that are outside your field evaluating you for tenure or for a job or something like that, part of publishing high quality research and being in those quality journals is people outside your field understand when it's a quality journal and things like the journal impact factor. And so the journal itself is kind of like a brand and it's the brand of where you publish your work. And so it's kind of a branding of your work as well and that that's your quality. And so that's something um, that's also considered and it's a way for, for your work, even for someone who's not familiar with your field or your exact science to know what kind of impact it's having. It's a very circular comment. We go back to the impact factor that we talked about kind of earlier. So there, and there, there are alternatives to that too, right? Now I don't know, there's some people who go into more of that than, than I know about, you know, like altmetrics or, um, you know, you include in your CV maybe how many times it's been downloaded or how many people have saved it to, you know, Mendeley or some other type of endnote things. Uh, you can also include any press that you've had on your work. Though I've heard actually some feedback from other people that they see that as showy if you include, like, kind of press outlets on your CV. So I don't know really how that is. But I guess do you guys have any other solutions to peer review or alternative models? Maybe, like, double-blind peer review. Do you guys have any thoughts on that, Grace? Um, I guess I don't have any particular thoughts about double-blind peer review. Um, I think that from the author's standpoint, it does actually help protect you in that you wouldn't be worried about that people are judging you based on uh, some bias about you. Um, but maybe that could also, I don't know, in some instances help people out. I'm, I'm not certain. It's certainly an experiment worth trying. 
So I've actually I've actually published in a journal that used double blind peer review. Um, it was not a a science journal strictly speaking. It's uh, more of a a pedagogy journal, um, and I thought it was I thought it was interesting. Um, it was a little bit more work up front, right? Because you have to blind your manuscripts, um, and if you're not accustomed to doing that. Uh, you can screw that up um, <laughs> what, once or twice. <laughs> what, is, what do you mean by that? What, is, what do you have to do beforehand? Well, so you need to review or remove identifying information. Um, and, you know, there are some places that are obvious, like, you know, you don't put your name and institution on it. Um, but in some cases, you know, there are other ways of... Um, inadvertently revealing your identity right like when you um you know your uh computer uh can like stamp your name into metadata about a document um so you have to uh if you're you know being really serious about it then you can have to kind of go in and um and alter that so that it doesn't it doesn't do that um there's a, a, a number of steps um, that that needs to be taken. I need, I need to read more about it. I don't know. And I, it sounds sounds good. It sounds like it could work. I don't know. Grace, have you ever done? Oh, you said, oh, you already answered that question. I don't know why I'm asking you guys again. Um, so one thing I think we had written on here was the PLOS One model, which if... Um, you know, if listeners aren't familiar, the PLOS One model, PLOS One is an open access journal. And the idea is that the science of any article or manuscript is reviewed on the merit of the methods and the results. I.e., so like if it's if you did good science, the novelty is not necessarily or the impact, like direct measurable impact that you can see up front, you know, like you know it's not as widely taken into consideration, right? If it's just soundly done, it's a good study they will publish it. And that does result in a lot of a lot more publications, right? They publish a lot because it's all online. But you don't have that consideration that you do for a lot of other journals, which is, you know, does this fit with the scope of the journal? Um, you know, are these found, you know, are these discoveries novel? It's more just about did you do a good job? Do you what do you guys think about that? And do you feel like it has a place? John? Oh, I absolutely feel like it has a place. Um, you know, we've, we've mentioned in past episodes um, this, you know, bias that exists in the scientific literature where um, studies that get positive uh, results are, you know, overwhelmingly what have historically appeared in the literature. And, you know, journals like these are an avenue for um, things that are more inconclusive. Um, and I think that there's value to that being out there. Um, I think there's value to this model of, you know, being open access. And so, you know, people without a, it doesn't require a subscription to read that paper. Um, and, you know, I, I've noticed that, um, you know, there are some papers that are published in open access journals that get a lot of 
uh, media attention that get a lot of citations. And, and I do think that um, those, you know, the fact that anyone can access those papers are related to that. Um, and just from a scientific perspective, I think it's, it's important to um, recognize that, um, you know, if you do good science, even if it doesn't come out in the most provocative way, that there is still um, going to be an avenue um, for those types of papers. So I, I definitely agree with the points that you've made, John, and that would be great. Do you think that actually plays out in practice in journals that just evaluate on soundness and not at all on novelty? To interject here in a way, it's like if, if you've done a good study and you've done a good job, you know that may become important later on, and I think it's good to have that in a place somewhere, right? Particularly if we talk about, you have the issue where you have in psychology and social sciences where you have a lot of problems with replicating studies. I, I don't know. I think it's, it definitely has a place out there. Sure. I, I, don't, I don't disagree that it doesn't have a place. I'm just saying, do you think it actually happens that way in practice in that the studies are still evaluated on their scientific soundness and they are sound? I ask because I've encountered a number of papers. Now this could just be a quantity issue because of the amount of science that's published in journals like Class One, where they're actually not really of the highest scientific quality. There's a lot of flaws with them. There, there's a gradient. That said, there are some academic editors that they have, and they have a lot of academic editors too, right? They do have some, the ones who I have met, and granted, I think there's several thousand, so I only know a couple, like a handful, <laughs> like less than 10, are excellent, and their papers are really good. You know, there have been some issues, like the Hand of God paper that was, you know, happened last year. And, you know, where these, uh, there were some researchers who wrote a paper about, like, biomechanics of the hand, human hand or something, and, and made a reference to the creator a couple times in the paper. And so there was a big retraction and a big to-do about that. But, yeah, it's a big operation, right? And so... When you, I guess when you print that many, you occasionally you're going to have something to get through. But every paper has, you know, every journal has that. I think it's just... Yeah, every journal has that. And one thing that I have noticed about the manuscripts that I have reviewed for PLOS One is that, and I think this is an effect of it being such a broad journal, but the handling editors on some of these papers are not as close to my own field as I would um, expect if I published or, or from, you know, as compared with um, reviews that I've done for other journals. And so I think that, you know, in some cases when you have these really broad scope journals that the handling editors may not be quite as familiar um with the methodology and um, the you know the kind of current state of some of some more narrow um, subfields, even if they are, you know, in a broad way, in that field. Yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of rabbit hole, and I don't you know I don't know. Yeah, it's it's an interesting world out there. Absolutely. So we had some we had something written on here about post publication peer review. Grace, you want to talk about that? I'm not sure what that is. 
Is that are you talking about? Like, is that John? Did you write that in there? Is that about like retraction watch or something? Well, I I think I did um, did add that to the list. So the the idea is that there are and this is sort of a new phenomenon and I and one that I don't know a whole lot about. There are um, things like um, the faculty of one thousand is an example where there are people who kind of review and evaluate. Um, work that is in the literature and um, you know maybe maybe more or less critical of it the, the faculty of 1000 are mainly aimed at um, identifying papers uh, recent papers that um, are particularly good and you know particularly impactful um, but there are some other things that I've, I've heard about but don't have um, any experience with um, that are a little bit more, a um, little bit more ad hoc, where people can just um, kind of comment freely um, and and rate papers. But maybe if other people don't have or have less experience with these things than I do, then it doesn't make much sense for us to comment on them. Yeah, so I I think I mentioned this before. Like I'm having I'm taking this um, like ethics and research class through VCU that's required if you're funded through the National Science Foundation. And yeah, we were talking about this website and I can't think of the name of it now where it's it's like crowdsourced and it's just people just go after other researchers' papers. It's not Retraction Watch. I think it's it's something else. Retraction Watch is just a website that kind of just repeats or just kind of, you know, publishes things up when there are retractions. But yeah, I can't I'll, I'll have to find it. I'll put it I'll look for it in the syllabus and whatnot and put it in the notes for the show. That'll go on the website when it goes up. So do you guys have any closing thoughts on peer review? Suggestions? Well, I guess one thing I would say is there are some sort of newer peer review models that seem to be coming more popular or coming online, at least. In some journals, they have uh, where there's a peer review and then there's a collaborative process between the authors and the peer reviewers following that peer review period. There's some open comment after peer review, but before publication in some journals. Um, and, you know, like the double blind peer review. So I think it's kind of an, an interesting time and there's some new innovations out there and it'll be interesting to see in the future what ones stick around and what experiments ultimately fail. Yeah, I think I think one thing that I would add is that um, whether it's this traditional model of peer review or any of the new ones that um, are beginning to be experimented with the success and failure really depends on the conscientiousness of the reviewers um and i think that i think that a lot of criticisms of peer review really get back to you know are your are your reviewers conscientious or not and whether or not you believe the majority are um or aren't it sounds like the three of us are pretty um conscientious and and take our responsibilities as reviewers pretty seriously um but not sure that everyone does jeff did you have any final thoughts no <laughs> well you did say i should think did of it at the beginning that you're here today and that's enough so <laughs> i am it's been a it's been a long week we've had uh uh some family stuff nothing bad but just kind of you know how it is work-life balance yeah, absolutely. it's been a long week we should have an episode on good. that the rain has helped the the rain has held off here in Charlottesville, so I think we still have we still have little league practice this afternoon, which is always fun. So that's good. All right, so 
going to close it up with forecast and predictions section. Uh, to revisit some of where we are, I actually didn't write down the score. I need to write down the score. I know we had taken some on bets for the World Series, and so far it's Indians and most likely Cubs. We're recording this on the Friday, so Cubs are up 3-2 over the Dodgers. But we uh, also had a follow-up from the Nobel Prizes. Uh, there were no women given any Nobel Prizes this year, and... But I think, Grace, you actually had a follow-up on about Bob Dylan. So you got I did. Us. So um, as of a few days ago, at least, the Nobel Prize Committee, who awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature to Bob Dylan, has been attempting to contact him. He's even made some public appearances and not acknowledged the prize. So my question to you guys is, is when do you anticipate he will acknowledge the prize? Oh, do you, do you, you, just want, you want like a, what do you want our answer? Um, like number of days? Number of days. Or if he even will. Yeah, I'm going infinity on this one. I think he's not going right. to. <laughs> Jeff? I'm, I'm going to go in infinity minus one that he will eventually. <laughs> that's, like, that's like Price is Right rules. <laughs> Deathbed? That Post is Price is Right rules. Going over. Uh, okay. I, I'll, I'll go. Yeah? I'll go with December 31st, 2016. Okay. So I'll put it by the end of the year. I'm going to go with um, by the time the ceremony happens, which I believe is sometime in December, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm going to say by the time of the ceremony without knowing the exact date. I predict he will not attend the ceremony, however. Uh, Price is right. You got me. I only have like a couple week window now. <laughs> okay, I got I got one for you guys. Um, let's see. I should actually look up the number of total. So my question is going to be on the total number of named storms in the Atlantic. But I need to know how many there are. We've gotten up to Nicole, at least. So we're up to Nicole. So was that 14? That sounds about right. OK, so looking at this one, yeah, we're up to Nicole. Um, so it's at 14. So I'm going to put the over under at, oh, let's, let's just do it from the prediction. So what's the prediction for the, I'll add some of this out. Prediction. Hurricanes, season 2016. I just want to add that we do all have PhDs in environmental science, so hypothetically we should be more expert than the average person on this. Let's see if that pans out. Should be. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> no, no. Okay. Um, all right, so the seasonal forecast from... The, what is this from? From IBM or something, some weather thing. says 15 named storms in the Atlantic, but we're already at 14. So I'm going to scale it to 17 and a half. Do you think there will be more or less than 17 and a half named storms in the Atlantic? So you got to take the over or the under. All right, I'm going to go with more. Do I have to give you how many? All right. Grace has the over. I'm going to take the, I'll take the under on this one. John's going under. I'm going to take the over as well. You know, I think, I think we need to start instituting a, a coin flip procedure for who has to answer first. Uh, well, you could take both. I, I think it, I think it more of as it's, we'll just do it as like a point thing and just kind of see like over time who amasses enough points. All right. Well, I'm on zero points just do for the, the record. You're zero? Yeah. Yeah. But that's okay. It's a marathon, not exactly. a sprint. All right. Well, <laughs> I better hope we keep this so, podcast up a long time. 
when we hit episode like 1000 we'll be able to look back so um, great yeah before we sign off what do you guys want to do next week well i think next week we can discuss um maybe how about policy and science and maybe politics because we're getting close to the election Oh man, policy, science, and politics. So you're saying you want to do a Halloween themed show? Is Absolutely. Right? <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> you got it. Do we get the Gary Johnson question? <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone, to this episode of Major Revisions. Please don't forget to check out our website at majorrevisions.weebly.com. You can also find us on Twitter at major underscore revisions. And you can also email us if you want. Find our email on our website. Um, so if you have any suggestions for shows or just want to tell us that we're wrong about something that we said today, we'd love to hear from you. So with that, thanks, and we'll talk to you later.